morning, Twitter. You are watching AMCDM. I, of course, am Stephanie McNeil, and I am so excited to welcome back to the show Lola Oganike. Thank you so much for coming back and hanging out with me. Thank you so much for having me. And, you know, Stephanie, we're cool now. We're best I'm friends. A, we're BFFs, but I'm about to blow it all up with a tweet from Kev. You ready? He wrote, what is the correct way to rank these chips? Oh, I love this. Okay, so we've got this classic box that you might see at, say, a Little League game mm -hmm. of this little serve of chips. Yes. And you need to give everyone your rating for one and two best chips because you told me this earlier today and I was totally disgusted. I'm horrified. <laughs> I, I don't even know what to say. Well... I think Lay's are the number one chip in that box. You heard me. I'm a Lay's girl. I like to get laid. <laughs> okay, that's a good one. A good the Lay just one. fell down in disgust. Lay's, Come I'm sorry. closer to mama. Lay's, Lay's are the worst chips. It tastes like a little piece of like lint with a bunch oh, of grease what? on it. What? And there's a reason that every time you have one of these boxes, when you're the last kid in the Little League line to get to the box, it's all Lay's. It's just like a bunch of plain Lay's. Do you understand how beautiful this chip is? First of all, this is the OG of potato chips. It's simple and classic. Potato, salt, grease. That's it. You don't need anything else. You can stick this in a sandwich. You can eat it independently. You can dip it. It goes with everything. So I have <laughs> to go with, obviously, obviously. I mean, I, I, can't wait to, I can't wait to see the tweets roll in agreeing with me. Does your going, dress match that bag on purpose? <laughs> I'm going to say yes. I choose to dress like Doritos at all times because they're so good. They're the best. I mean, here we go. Here we go. Okay. Okay, well, I'm going to end this debate with a final word from Amy, who tweeted, We give the plain lays to the old people and trash the Fritos, period. Ouch! That hurts. That hurts. That hurts. But I'll take it. Because you said your number two was... Fritos! So, okay. I'm old. I'll take it. I can't, I can't even. I can't but even But I look good. Right Black don't crack. So moving right along. Okay, well, Twitter, we want to hear from you. How would you rank these chips? Someone else give love for my plain Lay's and Fritos. Please help a sister out. Come on, AMCM <laughs> fam. Kirsten, I know you got me. Come on, girl. I, I feel like she's going to be like, no, Stephanie, oh, you're no. wrong. <laughs> oh, and, the, and that dust on the fingertips. No, 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 no. All right, so they're making me move on from Chip Talk. We could just turn this into AM to Chip Talk. But okay, we're gonna do some real news now. So here's a tweet from Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She says, I am a believer in privacy, which means I reject unlimited, unchecked, warrantless surveillance. Tracking consent should be given freely, aka not holding a service hostage for it, whether it's a government or a corporation. Warrants and their requirements are supposed to mean something. Now, AOC was responding to a scoop by BuzzFeed News reporter Davy Alba, who reported that the U.S. government will start scanning faces at 20 top airports. She joins us now. Hi, Davy. Hey. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. Thanks for being Good. here. So can you walk us through why the government is implementing this now? Yeah. So this biometric entry exit system is basically a facial recognition system that came from a congressional mandate after the 9-11 commission came out with its report. It was initially signed into law by the Obama administration. And then in March 2017, President Trump issued an executive order expediting the deployment of the system. 
So there are a lot of issues, not just with all of the other things people are talking about, but actually with this technology, right? Can you mm-hmm. discuss that a yes. little bit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, facial recognition is still rife with you know issues of inaccuracy and bias. Um, the best example in recent memory might be the ACLU report that came out last summer. They tested Amazon Recognition, which is a facial recognition platform, and it misidentified um, 28 members of Congress um, with arrest mugshots. And the false matches were also disproportionately people of color. Uh, Sucks for us. All right. What are privacy (laughs) advocates saying about this, Davey? Yeah, um, so privacy advocates are really concerned about this really broad and far-reaching program. Um, They say that the government skipped portions of a critical rulemaking process, which means that federal agencies have to first solicit public comment before they deploy really like broad projects like this on and use it use this kind of tech on civilians. So you know they they say that this is basically breaking the law and that CBP is almost like arguing that it should be above the law because it's doing this so quickly and without oversight. So they think this should be something that the law shouldn't even have to touch because it's so I guess important to our safety or what have you. What about exactly. the air, what about the airlines? Do they have a stance on this? Are they just using this? Are they buying the government's argument? Yeah, so the airlines are the entities that are purchasing sort of like the cameras and the equipment for this program. They're obviously sort of all in on this. Um, They say that it makes their boarding processes more efficient, but there's also obviously a commercial alignment of interests here. So, you know, these are facial images that could ostensibly be used for advertising or something down the line. And there were no commercial limits placed on the use of this data, this biometric data, until very recently. And we do not know to what extent CDP has implemented um, audits on the limits that they've put on airlines now. So, Davey, theoretically, these images could be sold to companies for their own use. Yeah, Theoretically, yes. We know of a limit that CBP has placed on airlines now, but they didn't respond to questions that we sent them on whether they apply this rule retroactively and to what extent it's already been used for commercial purposes. Wow. Well, everything can always be used for advertising. You'll always find a way to use things for advertising is basically the TLDR. Well, thank you so much, Davey, for your reporting and coming on and talking to us. Of course. Thanks for having me. All right, let's move along to this tweet from Judd Legum. Tucker Carlson said white men deserve credit for creating civilization. He described Iraqis as semi-illiterate, primitive monkeys. He said the Congressional Black Caucus exists to blame the white man for everything. It's all white nationalist rhetoric. Hmm. Well, joining us to break down all of this drama with Tucker Carlson is Washington Post media critic Eric Wemple. Hi, Eric. Hi, thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for coming on. So for those of you who haven't been following this story, can you help us get up to speed on exactly what happened? 
Oh, absolutely. So what happened, exactly what happened is that Tucker Carlson between 2006 and 2011 had this weekly uh, sort of call-in with uh, Bubba the Love Sponge, the radio host, uh, kind of a shock jock dude. Um, and this was, you know, more than a decade ago and it went for five years. And, uh, you know, as you know, radio shows just sort of disappear into the ether often and no one really remembers them. But Media Matters has this reputation and a lot of training and, and a lot of expertise in digging up old stuff um, that happens to be relevant. And I think they've proven in this case that it is. Tucker Carlson in 2009 uh, went to Fox News after having been at MSNBC and before that CNN. Um, and of course, he in 2016 uh, becomes a primetime host of Fox News, which makes him more than ever a newsworthy figure. So. Now, um, Media Matters dug up these old radio transcripts, these old radio recordings of Tucker Carlson saying misogynistic, homophobic, racist things uh, about all kinds of people. Um, I mean, the range is just stunning of the things that he said, but not terribly surprising because his Fox News program, at least in my opinion, is a slightly watered down and euphemized, if you will, version of those old remarks that he made on radio, presumably thinking that nobody was listening. Um, so that's where we are. Now, Eric, um, Tucker is not apologizing. I want to read a quote from his show yesterday evening. He said, sure. we will never bow to the mob ever, no matter what. Is this a smart career strategy for Tucker? If you're at Fox News, it's probably the only career strategy, right? You, Media Matters was launched in 2004. It was launched by this guy, David Brock. He's a, he's a former uh, conservative who turned liberal uh, and a big Clintonite. And they launched that to monitor Fox News. And they've been engaged in kind of a death struggle with Fox News uh, ever since Fox News constantly slams media matters on their air and there is no way that anything that originates from media matters will ever get a stern and serious and solemn consideration of fox news they will always say that anything that comes out of media matters is driven by you know uh, a liberal agenda and so on and so forth but that's the problem. They don't ever grapple with the substance. No one uh, on Fox News side, Carlson included, and his supporters just are always deflecting, saying this is a, a politically motivated hit. And that's been really the script for a real long time uh, for these people. So you can't, uh, and I, I, I'm not saying, you in, in their position, they cannot apologize. Um, I think they should. I think that's the way to go. I think that's the proper and humane thing to do. But it is simply not an option in their world, if you understand what I'm saying. That is so incredibly fascinating to have that sort of world where you just can't apologize for something. But one of the things we've seen with a lot of the scandals with Fox News, say the Bill O'Reilly thing, is the way that people try to make Fox apologize or take people off the air is boycotting their advertisers. Are we seeing that in this case? And are advertisers doing or saying anything? Well, there's been some movement on that front. And of course, back in December, Carlson said immigration makes the United States dirtier. And a big movement occurred at that point um, on the advertiser front. And it has started to gain um, uh, some speed, some headway again. Um, so yes, there is that approach. The, the issue with the advertiser boycott, however, is that cable news has a relatively 
relatively diverse um you know, relatively diverse revenue portfolio. You know, they do have the subscribers uh, fees. They have these. Uh, they have this retransmission fees. They have other um, other sources of revenue um, other than advertising. So it's hard to knock them out just by pulling away a few advertisers. Although the desertion from Carlson's show was around uh, 24, 27 the last time I looked. All right, Eric, look into your crystal ball and tell me: Will Fox stand by Tucker, or will they have to dump him eventually? I'm going to say they stand by Tucker because it's just too too big of an institutional priority to uh, to slam back at media matters. I just don't see them. I just don't see them doing that. Um, it would have to. Th- there would have to be more of a drumbeat every day, and someone else would have to get in um, into the stream, so to speak. Some other entity would have to find something that's not media matters to really make Fox News bend to their will in this particular instance. So I see them standing behind Tucker. I see this as um, two entities sort of digging in. Well, we'll have to see if this has any impact, but thank you, Eric, for coming on and breaking it all down for us. Thank you, thank you. And we have a great show for you today. Andrew Randles is joining us later, but up next, it's Fire Tweets. Okay, yeah, so we're gonna do fire tweets, but I just have to take a second and share with you and our audience something that our president just tweeted. Are you ready? No, I'm scared. Okay, I'm going to read this. Okay. Airplanes are becoming far too complex to fly. Pilots are no longer needed, but rather computer scientists from MIT. I see it all the time in many products. Always seeking to go one unnecessary step further when often old and simpler is far better. And he's apparently going to continue this tweet. He said split-second decisions are dot, dot, dot. It's been 14 minutes, and so we'll have to wait on pins and needles to see what he says next. But what do you think? Are airplanes too complex to fly? (laughs) I just want to eat some Lay's. (laughs) How do I answer that? What do you say to that? Pilots have been around forever. That is older and simpler. What is he talking about? You know what? We that's just not the to way to start the, the morning. That, uh. that, I mean, that's what he has to say. You know what? That's his truth, and we're sharing it with you. That's our job, right? Sharing the truth to the people. Wait, can we set that tweet on fire? Is that how this works? <laughs> no. Okay. All right. <laughs> all right. Let's do the rest of our fire tweets. Are you oh, ready? All right. <laughs> All right, this is from Juicy One Poppy. Sometimes the names are just as good as the tweets. Love it. They tweeted, stop killing alligators to make Gatorade, please. You know, you know what? That, the alligators. That is my cause for 2019. You know, there's a lot of other <laughs> stuff out there. You know, we've got horrible things happening all over the world. Climate change, racism, right. sexism. But this is my thing. This is what I'm going to stick with. Pilots. <laughs> pilots. Pilots. Justice for pilots. They do a good job. <laughs> All right. My turn. All right. Mina tweeted, if I ever act dumb, I'm joking. I'm 100% intelligent and know literally everything. I feel like every woman watching this show right now needs to recite this to themselves 10 times yes. for bed because you know all the white men are. <laughs> Oh, shots fired. Yes. It's true, right? (laughs) Am I wrong? Am I wrong? That should be our evening mantra, right? Yes. When we're washing our makeup off, we're like, I am the smartest person in the room. (laughs) 
I am exfoliating and I am the smartest person in the room. That is how they act, though. That is, <laughs> that is how they act. So I think we all need to start doing it. Okay, all right. that's what we're gonna that. do. We're Sign gonna do it. Up. Sign me up. All right, Emily V. Gordon. <laughs> the difference between in band in high school and in a band in high school is a cavernous golf. It's, she's right about that. That it's is like, so, so true. The size of the Grand Canyon, that's how, yeah. I have to shout out my coworker, Ryan Broderick, who tweeted that his in-between for this is in a ska band in high school. La, 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 la. Hey, Ryan, I like ska. <laughs> that's the first time I've heard that sound effect, and I want to keep that with me in my heart forever. That was fantastic. <laughs> I, I love it. I feel like every you. time I come on set now, they're going to do that just to troll me. <laughs> Don't do it. I do work it, hard. Do it. Do it. Do it. All right. <laughs> All right. This is fun. I love hitting that thing. My aggression gets out. All right. Your new dad tweeted, mouthing to ex-wife at the divorce hearing, can I get a ride home? See, that's the problem. That's why you're getting left. That's why you're. That's why I'm divorcing your ass because you mean, can't get a ride home. Yeah, that is a man who is getting divorced from. If I have ever heard one in my <laughs> right? life. Yeah, we can't be together. No, 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 no. no. Um, also, can you? Um, I'm hungry. Can you all give me a snack? <laughs> that's probably what I'll say to you, right? <laughs> can you give me some Fritos? <laughs> No, that's not what we do in my house. This is in my house. <laughs> All right, are you ready for the tweet of the day? Yes. All right, let's do it together. Yo! It comes from Jens. Okay, here, I'm going to do my best. All right. Do AirPods not have wires because we are scared of connection? Yes, Ruby girl. Yes. I, well, this is one of my favorite genre of tweets is mm. Rupi Core Shark. Yes. It's my favorite. I mean, sorry if you guys are fans, but that's hilarious. Yes, we got deep with it. I love it. We are afraid of connection. Yeah, like that incense and let's do it. I know. Okay. <laughs> Coming up, Stephanie will sit down with Tony-nominated actor and singer Andrew Rannells. But up next, we are going live from the district. Pilots are unnecessary. <laughs> Welcome back. We're going live from the district. And here's a tweet from the Washington Post. Pelosi comes out against impeaching Trump. He's just not worth it. The statement is likely to royal fellow Democrats. Ooh, royal mm. <laughs> fellow Democrats. Mm -hmm. Aren't we all? Joining <laughs> us now to talk about this story is BuzzFeed News Capitol Hill reporter Emma Loop. Hey, Emma. Hey. Okay, we got a little bit of a delay there with you, Emma, but stick with us. Okay, so do you think Pelosi is scrapping any chance of impeachment here with this statement? No, I think what she's doing is she's setting the bar very high for impeachment ahead of the 2020 elections. She's saying that without any sort of really, really damning evidence that has bipartisan support and and. and in the, an impeachment that has bipartisan support, then it's not really worth it in this case. So she is saying that the evidence has to be uh, extremely, uh, you know, damning. So what's new about this statement? Because Pelosi's actually been iffy on impeachment before, right? 
Yeah, you know, for several years, she's kind of been iffy on impeachment. Um, but I think, you know, she was trying to make a statement in this profile. She even prefaced her words by saying, hey, I'm going to be making news, which as a reporter is a pretty exciting thing to hear from the House Speaker. Um, but I think she was trying to make a pretty bold statement and lay this out before the election, saying that this is kind of the standard that the Democratic Party is going to be working off of as we head into the elections and as we head into these investigations of the Trump campaign in Russia uh, that have been reinvigorated since Democrats took the House. So as the Washington Post said, this is obviously going to be controversial with other Democrats. Who specifically, what wing of the Democratic Party do you think this statement is not going to please? Well, you know, I think a lot of the new young progressives in the party have been pretty outspoken about wanting to go forward with impeachment. And I think that Pelosi kind of addressed that in the profile. She she talked about what she has in common with some of these young progressives, whether it's AOC or others. Uh, you know, she talks about how she was an activist. She never really meant to get into politics and run for office in the way that she did. Um, and, you know, she realized that once you got here, you have to get things done. And so I think that's going to be kind of her talking point to these members who are very eager to impeach the president. Well, it's not just the young heads. Old heads like Maxine Waters also want to impeach the president. But I want to ask you a really quick question. When someone says, I'm going to make news here and telegraphs it that overtly, doesn't that feel a little weird or a little suspect, a little off to you? Yeah, I mean, obviously, if they're doing that, they're definitely going to be using you as sort of a platform to announce something. Um, you know, it's not necessarily the the, the bootstrap journalism that um, other scoops come from, but it's definitely exciting uh, nonetheless and, uh, you know, can, can definitely still mean that there's news in that statement. That's right. All right. Well, here's a tweet from Zoe Tillman. Do I know when Robert Mueller is going to be done? No. Do I know when he'll submit his report? No. I don't know a lot of things. But here's what we know about what will happen when he is finished with his investigation. So, Emma, what do we definitely know about the Mueller report now? We do not know when this thing is going to come out. There have been so many inaccurate reports saying it's going to be coming out this week. It's going to be coming out next week. Uh, it's been really all over the place, the reporting on this. And so what Zoe did was a very smart piece about laying out what we actually do know, the process that will happen when Mahler is finished. And the first step will be that he will send a report to Bill Barr, uh, the Attorney General at the Department of Justice, that will, at a bare minimum, lay out the reason why he decided to prosecute some people and declined to prosecute others. Uh, he can provide more information, but he doesn't necessarily need to. So he has some leeway as to what kind of details he wants to provide in that report. Once Barr knows that Mueller is done the investigation, Barr has to notify certain members of Congress, couple ch committee chairmen, uh, that Mueller has completed his work. So Congress will know when Mueller is actually done. And then Barr can decide what he wants to tell Congress about the contents of that report. Barr has said that he will be as transparent as possible while working within the rules and the regulations of the Department of Justice. So we will see just how much he provides to Congress. But Congress has already vowed to, no matter what Barr decides and what happens, to try to make that report public.
So basically, what every week it seems we hear from all these different media outlets, it's definitely going to be this week. What should we say? What should be our mantra? I think you should just ignore it and wait till <laughs> Mueller comes out with an end date. I mean, who really cares if it comes out next week or the week after? Like, let me live, you know? <laughs> oh my gosh, Emma, that is music to my ears. Let I think, me live. I think that our mantra in 2019 just needs to be, everyone needs to calm down. Right. We just all need to relax and we just need to wait and see what's actually going to happen, it's right? True. Thank true. you so much. No problem. Have a good one. Up next, Ariana Revellini speaks with Sophie McIntosh, who is the author of The Water Cure. Stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Ariana Revellini, BuzzFeed Books editor. Charlene Teo tweeted, gulped down the water cure this weekend. Brilliant, apocalyptic, gothic, poetic, lyrical, and feverish. Doesn't shy away from pain and terror. It is so good. The Water Cure is BuzzFeed's book club book of the month, and today I am joined by the author, Sophie McIntosh. Hi, Sophie. Hi. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Our readers who've started it are, like, loving it. It's so dark. It's so creepy. It's so good. It's, yeah, they love it. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad. <laughs> um, so The Water Cure is described as a dystopian feminist revenge fantasy about three sisters on an isolated island raised to fear men. How did you come up with this concept? I was writing a book about a family, a family that had been isolated from the world. Um, and in the first draft, they're actually on an oil rig. And I imagined it more as a kind of an eco disaster. Um, but around the time I was writing it, I think I was just getting more and more angry at the world. I was getting, I guess I, I, was, I was feeling a lot of things, you know, it was 2016 and there was a lot going on. So in the end, um, it kind of was a natural progression that I realized that the environmental disaster was actually something to do with toxic masculinity. Yeah, and people have made connections to The Handmaid's Tale, to even like the biblical Eve story. Where else did you draw information or inspiration from? Um, I drew inspiration from things like Shakespeare, like I Love the Tempest and King Lear. Um, I grew up in Wales, so Welsh, Welsh mythology was really important to me. Um, it was kind of just a, a melting pot of lots of things I was interested in, but fairy tales were definitely kind of a big thing. I just wanted it to feel totally timeless, even though it was a, you know, a futuristic story. And it does, but we are also seeing a lot of stories right now that explore female pain and suffering. Do you have a, like a, an idea of why that is happening so much now? I think it's just, it's, a, it's, a, it's the time when, you know, people are feeling these things and they have always been feeling these things, but maybe with Me Too, um, it's easier to vocalize, it's easier to share our stories and to kind of find that kind of community. How do you hope readers feel walking away from your book? I hope they feel seen and I hope they feel empowered and I hope they feel, I don't know, I don't, I don't want people to feel sad. I want them to feel hopeful. Yeah. I mean, people who have finished it, because there are those who rush through it, are definitely coming out with that. <laughs> um, your next book is called Blue Ticket, comes out in 2020. Does that have a kind of dystopian feel as well? I think it's more, I kind of think of it more as like a parallel universe narrative rather than dystopian because the world is more recognizably ours, but the rules are just very different. Um, I just like having a rule that you can break and through that rule, reflecting problems and stuff that we, we grapple with in our world in a different way. Great. Well, Sophie, thank you so much for joining me today. The Water Cure is available now everywhere books are sold. 
Check out BuzzFeedBookClub.com to read it along with the BuzzFeed Book Club this month. Up next, Stephanie is sitting down with the hilarious Broadway and TV star, Andrew Rannells. I am so excited to be joined by Tony-nominated actor and singer Andrew Rannells. You know him from the Book of Mormon on Broadway, Girls, and now he is in Black Monday. And he has also a new memoir out called too much is not enough. Andrew, thank you so much for coming thank on. Thank you for having me. As I was telling you, I loved the book so much. It's such a great piece of memoir. You have so many funny stories. Thank you. Do you have a favorite story or passage from the book? Um, I mean, I, I liked going back into my, sort of my childhood in Nebraska and thinking about particularly like those first years um, I had when I was like getting interested in theater and um, my first auditions, like auditioning for Oliver. I didn't get it. Um, that was, was such a great part of the all. book, though. I wasn't cast in that show at all, but it was it was a, it was a, a you know ultimately a good experience because it made me like want it more. But um, I still really have an axe to grind with that kid who got it. So, <laughs> well, if you find it, Lance if you're, if you're out there. That's his name. If he's I'm out there, you, Lance. Watch no, out. He's, I'm sure he's a lovely adult now. and um, He's like in a cubicle somewhere, uh, like, what did I I'm do? I'm not sure where he is, but he, uh, I'm sure, is lovely. I've never seen him again. One of the things you said for the book is that you are afraid if you ever had to go back and relive a day in your life, like you were oh. in our town, <laughs> that you would pick something really boring. Yeah. So is there a day that you would like to relive? Like, what's your best day? I mean, I, if I got to relive a day, so, you know, for anyone who doesn't know that reference, there's that the scene at the end of Our Town where they're like, you get to relive one day, and she picks this really sort of like Monday day in her life, which is actually turns out to be really beautiful. My fear is that I would accidentally pick like a day where I was just in my apartment alone <laughs> eating like Chinese and watching Mad Men like a, 13 hours in a row. Um, and I would be like, that would be the day I had to relive. But if I had to relive one, I think I would go back to the Book of Mormon opening night. Because I think I was so, it was so exciting, but I was also super overwhelmed to have all of that happening. And, and you, know, I, you know, I was present, but probably not present enough. So I would relive that. That's like, it's very interesting because I, I was telling you, I read your book yesterday. And one of the things that I found really interesting about the book was you kind of stopped the book <laughs> when you had your big break. So for me as a reader, I don't know what it was like when you did the Book of Mormon, which was obviously a huge yeah. career moment for you. But instead you chose to focus on your childhood and the years you had in New York where you weren't having success. Yeah, well, I mean, and when I do stop the book, so it's in two, early 2005 when I made my Broadway debut in Hairspray, and I was in the chorus of Hairspray, and that was my dream. My dream was to be on Broadway, and to just I just wanted to be in a Broadway show. I never got more specific than, like, I want to be the lead, I want to open a show. Like, I just wanted to be on Broadway. So at the time, at 26, like, I, that's what I wanted. And I feel like even though it's not the thing that maybe people know me from, it was such a huge moment in my life that like kept me sort of on the right path and kept me focused. And um, that's what I came here to do. And of course, then, you know, when you achieve a dream, then you sort of swap it out for a new one sometimes, or you like think of a slightly larger one than that you want. And, um, and that happened, but I didn't want to minimize the fact that that was, that was also a big deal. And sometimes those wins, don't always take the shape that you think they're going to. You know, it's not always like holding an Oscar in your hand. Sometimes it's it's something that's maybe a little smaller and a little more contained and personal. I think that's what you said too, is you have this bio that's obviously very impressive, but it was everything before that that led to Yeah, and that's always the stuff that gets skipped over is like, you know, 
being a temp, um, <laughs> doing Pokemon Live. Those are things that I don't include in my bio, but now they will be. Okay, can we talk about Pokemon Live for a no. second? <laughs> no, we can't. Nope. Yes, I saw you. I saw you talk about it. I, don't, I think it was like a Broadway interview or something. But okay, for those of you who don't know, you oh, starred God. in Pokemon. Why Live does this exist? With this amazing wig. Of course, as soon as I read that passage in your book, I immediately Googled it, and I was like, "Oh uh, my God!" Yeah, it was a real show. This is amazing. It's a real show. So, what was the show about? That's a damn good question. Um, as far as I recall. I mean, I, I I still don't really understand what Pokemon is. It's like a it's a card game, or it was a card game. It was a video game. I'm not exactly sure. It was a cartoon. Um, what the story of that was was like the lead kid whose name is Ash. Pikachu gets kidnapped. Like I, me and this girl kidnap Pikachu, and then the whole thing is like how to get Pikachu back. Exciting. I don't really recall many of the details of the very complex plot lines, but. Um, I sure did have to wear that goddamn wig every night. And it but you was, have a, you had a really interesting point about this in the book, and that's kind of why I wanted to talk about it, not yep. to just embarrass you with this sure, purple sure, wig. Sure. Too late. <laughs> um, is that you said that while you were being cast in this show, you realized yeah. is that the character was kind of playing on some harmful stereotypes, yeah. and you just did it because you needed the money and you yep. needed work. And, I mean, do you regret that or do you, it's more of a learning experience? It was a learning experience. Uh, you know, we're, it was you know, based on this cartoon, so the characters were already sort of shaped and they just were looking for people to do these sort of impersonations of these characters. And the one that I played was like, you know, a real gay clown. It was like a what I now think was a very sort of offensive voice and um, demeanor, but I knew I could do it. Uh, and I had just gotten myself in this position where I just really needed a job. So I did it and initially I didn't think it was going to be a big deal, but then it actually did really affect me in, a, in a, a more profound way because I would see these little kids coming to the show. Odds are good there were some little gay ones out there, and I was like, I don't want them to think that this is the only way we can behave and that we have to, like, play it for laughs. And even though, like, there was obviously no sexuality involved in Pokemon Live, but, you know, just the idea that, like, well, that's a, a gay guy. That's the clowny gay guy. And I just, I hated that that I was sort of perpetuating this myth, particularly for these kids. So, yeah, that was, the, I was, I just, I vowed to myself after that, that like, whatever it took, like, I'll be better at saving my money, I'll get a survival job, whatever I need to do to like, not put myself in a position where I have to take a job that I really didn't want. And that's, and that's a good lesson to learn. Too. Yeah, and I, was, right? and I was young to learn it, so I was lucky that that's yeah. when it happened. Well, you're appearing in the new show, Black Monday. Sure am. Very incredible cast. We have Don Cheadle. We have Casey Wilson, who was on oh, the show a few yes. weeks ago, actually. Best. Who were you the most excited about working with? I mean, I was super excited. I had known Don a tiny bit. I had met him. I had never met Regina Hall. Casey and I were already friends, so I was very excited about that. So I was really pumped to meet um, Regina, because I just... Love her very much, um, and then we all got to spend so much time together doing this this series. It was really just it's a it's a great show. It's a very odd sort of combination of like it's a sort of a serious uh, drama in some ways. We're following this very specific uh, path to the 1987 stock market crash, um, but then it's also a very broad comedy. Um, so it was a really fun challenge to sort of find the balance between that, um, and and the cast is really great and fun. Yeah. yeah, it's a good cast. It's a good cast. Got a it's a good cast, folks. Okay, so we wanted to play a little game with you. Oh, Are boy. you game? Yeah. Are you game for Does the game? Does it involve a wig? 
It does not involve a wig, right. but I'm kicking myself right now because I well, wish it did. Next time. We should have made you wear the wig the whole time. Okay, so your book is called Too Much Is Not Enough. So we're going to play a game with you. It's rather simple. It's okay. called Too Much or Not Enough. So I'm going right. to tell you something, and you're going to tell me, do we have too much of this in our lives, or do we not have enough of this Ooh, in our I like lives? being judgmental. Okay, you ready? Uh-huh. First one, Patty Lapone. Ah, oh, not enough. I think we all can agree not there, enough. right? Not enough. Not right. enough. I just made the gay pilgrimage to London to see her in company, and I gotta tell you, it was well worth it. You got to meet her, right? I don't want to brag, but I have her phone number, and like we'll text and stuff. What do you so. guys, what do you ta- what do you text about with Patty Lapone? Private things. Wow. No. Um, <laughs> look, that's me and Patty Lapone. There's proof and <laughs> Sally Field. Like, let's be honest. You're living your best life. I'm living my best life. That was a crazy night, but the show is phenomenal, and she is incredible in it. So, if you're in London. If I'm in London, I'll get it. There's never enough. All right. The 80s fashion on Black Monday. Um, You know, I'm going to go with too much. Because, I mean, while I did get very used to myself in a high-waisted pleated pant, and I was like, I think I look good in this. Um, It's not meant for the streets. It's for costume parties. (laughs) It's for TV (laughs) and costume parties. You don't think that look should come back? No, but like I got really, sometimes this happens as an actor, like particularly if you're doing, like you're in the same type of clothing a lot, you do get used to yourself looking a certain way. So I did, I was like, oh, I look normal in these pants. So much so that I like, after a couple glasses of wine, was like, I want to buy some pleated pants from Hugo Boss. And I was like, what the hell am I doing? I'm not going to wear these pants. It's like a goddamn costume. You can start a trend. No. All right. <laughs> Maya Rudolph saying bubble bath on Big oh. Mouth. We have a clip of it. We have a clip oh. of it. If you need me, I'll be in the bubble bath. Bubble bath. The bubble bath. Bubble, bubble, bubble bath. I mean, she's the greatest. I love that show. I mean, not enough. And I, you're on the show. I am on the show. I play Matthew on that show. Um, I love doing that show, but she's, man, oh, man. She's the best. She. The best. It, it is a... It is a great show. Do you like playing Matthew on the show? I love playing Matthew on that show. Yeah, I think it's it's a fun. Um, Nick and John and Andrew they made like a, a a fun choice to make like the gay kid sort of the also the bully, um, mm-hmm. which I enjoy. I enjoy that. <laughs> I mean, really, he's an really, amazing character. It really spoke to me, um, and I got to do a very fun um, musical number with Jesse Klein in our Valentine's Day special. Yeah, I loved. I really loved doing that show. It's, it's a lot of fun. It's a great group of people. And my Rudolph, not enough my Rudolph. I agree. Ever. Just in general. Just in general. Okay, here's our last one. Live musicals on TV. We got the Grease Live. Oof. What are the other ones? I don't remember. I mean, I'm going to be, I'm going to say not enough because I do appreciate that, you know, if I was a kid watching that at home, I'd be very um, entertained and encouraged and enthusiastic about those, those shows. So I say keep them coming. Do you, get, do you get into them? Do you like live tweet? Do you have a viewing party? I don't live tweet, but I, I do watch them. Yeah, I do watch them. I've strangely never been asked to be in one, which seems like a real crime. That I'm se- just joking. That's, that seems like a missed opportunity. That's, I was, that's not true. I mean, but I have not been asked to be in one. <laughs> well, we'll have to get you in one next time. Now, now you're saying, what should in, I be in? You're putting, I don't know. What do you, what do you, what's a role you've always wanted to play? I don't know. <laughs> High School Musical. <laughs> yeah, I could, I could still do that, right? Yeah. Pull the 100%. camera back. 100%. Pull that camera way back. I'll be Troy Bolton. Yeah, there you go. All right, it's settled. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Too Much Is Not Enough is out today. Pick up a copy for you and a friend. Up next, we're talking about Jordan Peele's new movie, Us. All right, gang. 
welcome back to the show. No, writer Clarkisha Tent, sorry, Clarkisha Kent, I got it, tweeted, Get Out does a lot of really smart things with social commentary and horror, but if you're a classic horror aficionado, then Us movie is definitely for you. Clarkisha joins me now to talk about Jordan Peele's latest film. Hi, Clarkisha, how you doing? How you doing? I'm great. Loving the hair. All right. You tweeted, Jordan Peele owes me some aspirin and some Jim Beam whiskey. <laughs> I watched that film and I was scared out of my boots. Was it that scary for you too? It, it was. Now I will kind of leave with the precursor that I am um, famously a scaredy cat when it comes to, you know, horror and suspense films. But I do think this film was like genuinely scary and you know for once you know i went with friends and i didn't like i didn't watch the film through my fingers so i just i got all of it (laughs) so i do think it's genuinely like a frightful treat i would say it's you know what's interesting about this film get out was a psychological thriller this film is more of a traditional horror film with splashes of social commentary but if you're looking for get out too this ain't it right this is not get out too not nope this is not it But that's a good thing, you know, because it's uh, showing um, Jordan's range, you know, that he can do different things within the same genre. You know, the film got a standing ovation at South by Southwest, but a lot of people did admit to leaving the theater feeling a bit confused. How do you think the challenging subject matter will play at the box office? Because it is ambitious. Uh, That is a good question. Um, I'm trying to think of something to say without, you know, um, universal busting my door down and dragging me out. <laughs> no spoiler alerts. We're not doing that today. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is very ambitious. Um, there's nods to you know um, classic horror films and you know um, other you know great horror directors. I think it should play out well because I, I think it's a very great um, sophomore um, effort, um, and I. I've, I've seen nothing but really great and genuine hype for the film. So I think it should translate well in the box office. You'll definitely never look at bunnies or scissors the same way. Let's just... No, no look, I will not. Not at all. <laughs> all right, let's talk about Lupita Nyong'o's performance. Woof. She brought it. On a scale of one to 10, how would you rate her performance and why? Uh, 65. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, <laughs> 65. Um, she did really, you know, well. Um, one of my colleagues, Jump for Joy, kind of summed it up really well. And I, I'm, I'm going to, like, garble her tweet. But she she basically said that, you know, we've only kind of begun to see um, Lupita's, like, range and the kind of the extent of her talent. So I'm really glad, you know, um, Peel gave her like like a role like this where she, you know, shoot the scenery. Um, there's so much acting she does, like I tweeted, like with just her face alone, um, that like it was just really like uh, to behold her just doing her thing on screen. Um, I would not be shocked if this results in some Oscar nom for her. I know that's very rare for like horror roles. Um, but I think that she has a very, very strong chance. Hey, you never know. Black Panther got an Oscar nomination and that was unheard of for superhero films. So 
Might be a horror film with an Oscar nomination coming up. All right, you also tweeted, Winston Duke plays cornball black dad perfectly. To perfection, he was often the source of comic relief, even during the film's most terrifying moments, and he is genuinely funny. Mbaku has left the building. It's all about corny dad right now. How right did he get this? Um, He nailed it, you know, um, and it was, i say, a tough thing to nail because, you know, you're in a horror movie, um, everything's tense, um, people are screaming, like, there's a lot of terror, like, there, there's a lot of things going on, so I feel like, you know, um, his skills combined with, you know, um, people's comedic timing, it just was just perfect, you know, there were moments where, you know, something genuinely terrifying on screen was happening, and Duke would say something, and you would pause from, like, screaming your head off to be, like, really, and then laugh. <laughs> him but like it was it was well done there's not there wasn't a moment where it was like oh this is inappropriate or this is you know so corny that it just doesn't land um everything was pretty like balanced um so yeah i as a result i just i really want to see him like how would he do in you know another comedy or like how would he do in in a rom-com so like i'm really interested to see (laughs) like what he does next because I feel like if he wants, he has a bright future in some of those genres. Yeah, it was definitely refreshing to see a Black dad portrayed in that way. It was also refreshing to see a Black family that looked like they could actually be a family. We all know we've seen Black families throughout the years, and you're like, how are those kids, I mean, those parents, um, this doesn't add up. Was that, how did you feel about that? Um, yeah, so there was actually, you know, literally when the first trailer dropped, um, back in the December, was it? <laughs> um, and a lot of us were kind of excited about it because we're like, wait, this is a very, you know, this is a dark, just not a black one, but like a dark skinned, you know, black family in a potentially huge, you know, um, box office film, um, that, you know, no disrespect to any like light skinned actresses, but there's not any random like mother or daughter who is completely like many, many shades removed from, you know, the husband or the son. And you know, those variations do happen in black families, but like when we talk about media, we talk about messaging and things of that nature. It's just that particular, you know, picture of a black family is what's pushed more. Um, and as a result, you, you get the side effects of colorism or whatever. So um, I was genuinely shocked when I did see that trailer drop at first and was very excited as a result. Um, and then seeing how it plays out on screen is really, really cool and just genuinely got me excited um, for the film um, and excited um, for the future of Black film in particular because um, I feel like, you know, if we get out of our own way, you know, and obviously, um, barring any of the other <laughs> obstacles in the medium, I feel like, you know, this is going to be a very, um, almost like a, another, like, renaissance um, period for um, Black art. Oh, Clark Keisha, thank you so much for joining us. You like that, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for having me. Have a good day. And up next, Stephanie and I read your tweets. All right, welcome back. We asked, how do you properly rank these chips? 
and good old James says, Cool Ranch Doritos are trash. <laughs> it goes Takis, regular Doritos, Fritos, and the rest everyone else can have in any order they want. Yeah, so we learned from this tweet that a lot of people in the studio don't know what Takis are. Never heard of Takis before. They are so good. I would what do they taste like? So actually, Trader Joe's just did a dupe of them that you can get at Trader Joe's now. They call like, it's like hard to describe. They're like tangy, but a little spicy. They kind of make your mouth water. They're like really limey. Oh. They're very good. I love them. Okay. I, I really love them. Right. But unfortunately, Talkies. for society, <laughs> Anathia agrees with you, Lola, on yes! Lay's. She said, Lay's first. Yes, Anathia, that's my girl. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Oh, Rachel Hey Girl Field had this to say about our tweet of the day. My headphones have wires because I'm okay with connections. I also am okay with talking on the phone. I am thus a fearless millennial. You're really bu bucking the system there, Rachel. <laughs> yeah, I don't have AirPods. I've actually thought about getting them for running because I've actually snapped two pairs of headphones in half because they've gotten caught on things while I was running. Oh, no. I'm not going that fast. That's it's worse. just, yeah. I'm but I'm, I'm afraid of looking like a tech bro. I'm always afraid of losing the AirPods because I yeah. fall, like fall down the toilet and I'd be like, oh, not again, cusses. They're really expensive, right? No, they're not cheap at all. Well, obviously we could talk about this all day, we but could. I know, I think we gotta go. Well, thank you to our guests, Davey Alba, Eric Wemple, Ariana Revellini, Emma Loop, Sophie McIntosh, Andrew Reynolds, and Clarkisha Kent. And Isaac and Saeed will be back here tomorrow at 10 a.m. Have a great rest of your day. Bye. Bye.